You're listening to the Global Quick Influence podcast. Renewable energy is a hot topic for engineers, businesses and governments, as well as the quality of our daily lives. The principle of the green hydrogen economy is based on that water is abundant on Earth. We currently use water in energy generation through hydropower technologies. So one might say that we have already met a sustainable method to produce energy. By taking a closer look at current hydropower practices, we see that these impact water quality and flow, resulting in low dissolved oxygen levels in the water, which is harmful to riverbank environment and is now solved by various aeration techniques. But the disturbance of nature is there. One of the key features of green energy is to allow the ecosystem to function without disruptions. The best way to do that is to observe nature, learn from it, and incorporate its mechanisms into our technology. Today, I'm with Professor Michael Bernitzas, with whom I will discuss how mimicking the movement of schools of fish led to the bladeless vivace a sustainable hydropower energy technology with high power density, the challenges of commercializing a product from academia into the global market and economy, making hydropower sustainable for human and aquatic life, the multi- and exodisciplinarity of the research academia. Maggie Pernitas is a professor of naval architecture and marine engineering and a professor of mechanical engineering at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Professor Benitez holds the Mortimer Cooley Chair of Engineering and he is director of the Marine Renewable Energy Laboratory. Professor Benitez is also chief technology officer of a startup engineering company, Vortex Hydro Energy. Michael graduated from the National Technical University of Athens in 1975 and attended before then Athens College. He moved on to MIT in Ocean Engineering where he earned two master's degrees and his PhD. In 1979, he joined the University of Michigan as an assistant professor where he continued his career and acted for nine years as department chair. Welcome to the show, Michael. Thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity to uh, discuss with you such an important topic. Vortices are in a sense spinning masses of fluid or air that have been historically studied for destructive phenomena and how to mitigate them in onshore and offshore structures. Your expertise lies in harvesting underwater vortices. You initially started from supporting offshore drilling and now you produce renewable energy. What skills do you have to develop to make this transition? Uh, typically, uh, change in research is gradual. It's not abrupt. And uh, the underlying science uh, and engineering uh, related to uh, suppressing these destructive phenomena that basically are problematic, not just in offshore engineering, but also in bridges, uh, building bridges and um, buildings, uh, even in aerospace and nuclear engineering, uh, even in small cylindrical structures like fishnet filaments, the underlying science is exactly the same. The question is, 
depending on the application that you have, how do you implement your knowledge and how do you solve uh, problems that we face? So in the fields that I mentioned, we face the problem of extreme excitation of the structure, response basically to the fluid excitation in, an, in a very uh, dramatic way that causes fatigue and eventual destruction of the structure. But on the other hand, if we use it intelligently, the same technology, we can enhance vortex setting, we can enhance the response of structures to the fluid excitation and control it and harness energy. And that's exactly what fish do. Um, obviously, if you see airplanes um, flying, they fly on uh, steady uh, motion and a steady lift force on the wings. But uh, water is much more dense than air. And fish, of course, are much smarter than us when it comes to swimming in the ocean environment. And what they never swim with uh, a steady flow and a steady lift. They move with alternating lift. They curve their bodies, they correct a vortex on one side, they push it away, they correct one on the other side, and they push it away. So basically with alternating movement and alternating lift, they move forward efficiently. So the picture in the ocean is very different from the picture in the air. And the picture of our technologies, which are mostly based on lifting surfaces like propellers, wings, and so on, is very different from what fish do individually and also in schools. So you have adopted this mechanism, the natural mechanism of schools of fish moving underwater into your technology, which you called Vivace. And you might need to explain to us um, what the acronym of Vivace means, even though in English it might be pronounced as Vivace. Before you describe what the advantages of Vivace is over the existing hydro turbines. Okay. Um, the hydro the hydropower covers several aspects. And one part of hydropower, of course, is uh, when we have a difference in pressure because of difference in height in flowing water, as we do in rivers. And typically we put the dams that stop the water, then take it through turbines and of course, har harness energy. Uh, the, now we know better uh, after centuries of using uh, this kind of hydropower that this is really uh, destructive to the environment. And here in the United States, uh, we decommission about 1300 small dams per year. And of course, the once the, a big dam is in place, whatever changes to the environment have happened, they have happened, and we go along with that because the energy is very useful. I mean, it's the backbone of our civilization. And then there is the other aspect of hydropower, which is a hydrokinetic energy. And the hydrokinetic energy is what we find in flowing water, uh, and it comes in two kinds, vertical and horizontal. Vertical is what we find typically in waves. And horizontal is what we find in currents, in rivers, and in tides. So the 
Vivace can work in the ocean environment, both in currents and horizontal flows, and also take advantage of vertical flows. But for now, we are really focusing on how to take energy out of horizontal flows, which means currents, um, rivers, and tides. The other thing that uh, I would like to say is that no technology is perfect. So there are advantages uh, uh, to the turbines and advantages to Vivace. So let me uh, make a few quick points of comparison. Uh, the vast majority of currents around the world, uh, that is flows in the oceans are typically slower than three knots, about a meter and a half per second. Uh, rivers are typically less than, slower than one meter per second. Uh, there are only seven sites in the United States where currents are very strong, uh, like they go above uh, four to five knots uh, or two, two and a half meters per second. And that is the minimum speed that turbines require to be financially viable. Of course, there are other locations around the world, uh, not so many, but uh, for example, a, the British Channel uh, in the British Channel, the flow can go as fast as 15 knots over seven meters per second. And in Southwest Korea, between the islands, it can go up to 12 knots. Of course, these are the exceptions. So there is definitely a lot of energy in some places of very high speeds uh, to use turbines to harness energy. But on the other hand, uh, the vast majority of currents around the world are slow. And so you need a device that can really operate in these kind of environments. Uh, and uh, the underlying concept of uh, Vivace, which is flow-induced oscillations, uh, is a very scalable phenomenon. It works with uh, tiny structures like fishnet filaments all the way to the Tacoma Narrows Bridge that collapsed because of uh, flow-induced oscillations or buildings or large offshore platforms. So it's very scalable. And so it gives us a very powerful tool to harness energy that wouldn't be harnessable otherwise. We said that fish undulate their bodies and with oscillatory lift, they push forward very efficiently. And also they work synergistically. In schools, fish usually at, front, at the front of the school, they break the waters and they create an, uh, a very uh, easy wake for the other fish uh, to move. So what we're trying to do with Vivace is with simple structures like cylinders, with turbulence stimulation, mimic the kinematics, mimic the dynamics of fish without having to go through the complexity of undulation of a flexible body. And what we do then, we put multiple cylinders close to each other. And the way the pattern of cylinders undulates is very similar to what fish do when they move their bodies in order to move efficiently in water. So uh, you also asked me to explain what uh, the acronym stands for. Uh, for example, if you have a stationary body in fluid, then it's subjected to drag or what other forces you may have. But if the body is flexible, like, for example, a cylinder on springs or an elastic cable, then uh, the 
fluid excites the body, the body with its motion changes the flow around it. And in some phenomena, there's coupling. And that's what happens with vortex-induced vibrations. And then there is another uh, phenomenon, also an instability, a fluid structure interaction instability, which is called galloping, which is even more severe. That's what um, bridges, uh, cables, uh, buildings uh, can be destroyed uh, by. So we are using both these phenomena, vortex-induced vibrations and galloping, that we have under one umbrella, one name of flow-induced oscillations, to mimic the dynamics of, of fish without the complexity, the complexity of the kinematics of it. So uh, a third um, issue that is important when we are talking about respect to the environment is how fast our bodies, our structures move. So for, you know, for example, that if you have a large wind turbine, then the tips of the, of the blades go at speeds of 80 and 90 meters per second. Uh, they, the noise that they produce is severe and they kill about half a million birds per year. We face, of course, similar challenges with uh, marine life when we operate with large propellers or we operate with large turbines in the ocean. The advantage uh, of Vivace here is that the velocity of the oscillating cylinders that we have is about 20 to 40% faster than the incident flow. And they're blunt surfaces, they're not sharp surfaces. So they present a minimum uh, danger to fish. But what I find uh, really most uh, rewarding is there has been a study, it ended like 12 years ago. It was funded by the Department of Energy. The, that was between uh, Oak Ridge National Lab, Harvard and MIT. And what they did is they put fish behind cylinders in a lab and also cylinders in a river and observed the behavior of fish. And the wake of a cylinder is an alternating pattern of vortices, which is exactly what fish like. So fish were hiding behind uh, cylinders and by very slight movement of their bodies, they would ride on the vortices and then they would relax, they would spawn more. It was really a very pleasant environment for fish. So now we're talking about Vivace, which creates a wake, which is beneficial to fish. And at the same time, we're taking energy out of the flow. So this is really the essence of a symbiotic uh, life between our machines and fish. But vivace sounds like an Italian word. What does it actually mean in Italian and how could be transferable to your technology? The initials, first of all, it's an acronym, right? So it's VIV, it stands for Vortex Induced Vibrations. It's one of the two underlying phenomena of, uh, of our motion. The ACE at the end is aquatic clean energy. And vivace, you know, in, in music, in opera, is the lively part of it. And the cylinders, of course, move very lively uh, with very large amplitude oscillations. And we thought that this uh, word vivace describes very well the phenomenon, in addition to being the correct acronym for our technology. Even though I never studied uh, vortex-induced vibrations, I still have, I guess, as a chemical engineer, the 
common engineering knowledge, I would say that Vivace sounds like a non-invasive technology that takes advantage of much smaller velocities that current hydro turbines need without posing um, a danger to the aquatic life. So this is quite advantageous in terms of what we want to achieve through renewable energy. Indeed, we're very excited about uh, the direction that this uh, technology is going. And we have uh, conducted numerous tests for years, for over a decade uh, in my lab, the Marine Renewable Energy Lab, and also uh, five field tests, the communities uh, in uh, where we have uh, deployed the, the, the Vivace converter are, are accepting the technology. Uh, in um, uh, the St. Clair River near the Blue Water Bridge, which is a river between Canada and the United States, there were two technologies applying for use or permission to use the waters. One was Vivace and the other was a classical turbine five meters in diameter. And uh, people were very clear that they do not want the turbine and they invited actually Vivace to three different uh, places in that community. Having said that, I do not mean that turbines are not useful. Uh, we can go to areas where w waters are not close to people, used for navigation or, uh, or recreation. And at the same time, if there are large uh, fish that could be uh, hurt really by the turbine. There could be sensors sensing the motion of fish and stopping the uh, movement of the turbine. These technologies are really in their infancy and we hope that with continued support from the Department of Energy and other agencies, all technologies will advance and will give us the so desirable renewable energy which is, as I mentioned, the backbone of our civilization. So how far would you say that Vivace is for commercialization? At this point, uh, the research continues in, uh, in uh, my lab, uh, and uh, there's a, a lot of ways in which we can improve and optimize the power output. So on one hand, the research can go on for many years as we understand better the, uh, the way fish swim in, in oceans. On the other hand, we have a device which uh, is ready to be commercialized. And what we need uh, as a lab is basically an industrial partner who is going to take the uh, designs, finalize it and produce it. So that's where we are at that point. The number of applications is very high. Uh, because the device is very scalable. You can have something very small that you can put in a, in a river to just power your electronics if you're in the middle of nowhere. You can have larger devices which can be very close to a consumer like uh, uh, sensors, for example, or buoys or anything else that we may have that we need in ocean observation and which is in the middle of the ocean and far away from any energy resources. Or you can put it in uh, uh, places like Alaska or the Caribbean, where there are no resources, no natural resources, and we really transport energy and at very high cost. What we are looking for as uh, a lab is basically an industrial partner who can work with 
uh, Vortex uh, Hydro Energy, which is a small engineering company that we have to commercialize it. So uh, the science is there, the technology is there. We need a little bit more of engineering in order to be able to uh, mass produce a device. So I understand that Vivage is ready to be commercialized and deployed as it has already been tested for low current velocities. But what you suggested is that maybe further research is needed if Vivage is going to be deployed in the oceans where the current velocities are much higher or maybe more unpredictable in some environments. Um, I'm glad you mentioned that issue of unpredictability. Uh, because um, the the currents are pretty predictable in the ocean. And even if there is variation of the velocity of the current, uh, Vivace, because it's a fluid structure interaction phenomenon, has a very broad range of synchronizing with the flow. So without making any changes to it, we can make it synchronize at very low speeds or at very high speeds and anything in between. Uh, the adjustment through the controller is very simple. Uh, adaptive control can really make the flexible structure synchronize with the excitation from uh, the flow. And when I mention research, um, maybe an appropriate example is like, you know, a century ago, uh, we invented uh, the automobile and there was a product at that time and then 100 years later, we're still doing research and development because uh, we can improve propulsion. I mean, um, the, the internal combustion engines or we can improve uh, power using uh, electrical uh, power and batteries and so on. So in the more we understand the phenomena the, and the underlying physics, the more we can improve the device. So I hope that uh, this uh, trend of developing uh, this uh, benign for the environment device will continue. Uh, there are more than 3,000 citations to our research in the past uh, five years. Uh, there are lots of labs uh, all over the world in all the continents that and, and uh, universities that work on advancing this technology. Hopefully, uh, this will continue and will give us better and better products in the future. I understand that the research is ongoing and even research on a topic might continue for many years to come. I understand also that research is um, affected by the challenges a society faces, which I guess are different today than 100 years ago uh, in regard to the example you mentioned about the automobile. Now, going back to the timeline of the development of Vivace, how challenging is commercializing a product from academia into the real market and economy? Very challenging. And, uh, and, and there are opportunities, definitely. But at some point, a decision has to be made whether the um, researcher, like myself, is going to continue being a researcher or is going to start a company to commercialize uh, things. And I've been uh, very lucky working at the University of Michigan. It's uh, always either the first or the second uh, university in terms of research expenditure. So for more than 40 years that I have been with the university, it has a very 
strong Office of Technology transfer. So in that respect, they assisted very much in uh, getting the patents, uh, starting a company, assisting with funding, and so on. So if um, somebody wants to stop doing research and go through to commercialization, then something can speed up or uh, sell the license to a commercial entity to do the commercialization. Also, it can go very fast. But if uh, for a researcher and professor like myself who wants to remain in academia and be able to promote research more, that becomes a very challenging issue. Uh, because uh, we have to deal with teaching, we have to deal with the lab, with research in the lab, with the technology transfer to a company, and of course, family that comes first. And you put all these together and there isn't enough time. So there are several challenges. Uh, the University of Michigan is extremely careful with a conflict of interest in the sense that the best educated people to work on this technology are the people that are educated in my lab. So using them in the company while they're still at the university is a conflict of interest. That is an issue, uh, an important issue, because you need to find the right people to work on, on such a esoteric uh, technology in, in a way. And of course, on the other hand, is my own personal conflict of interest. Where do I want to be? Do I want to become, a, um, to remain a professional researcher, or do I want to go towards building a large company. And um, I never resolved that conflict. <laughs> so, um, and, and that's why we say at this point that uh, really we need an industrial partner who can do the commercialization job. Uh, They're way better than we are at that. Over the past six months, I write uh, weekly articles on LinkedIn. And at one point I wrote about the um, collaboration between universities and the industry regarding research. By going through some uh, research articles, I found out that the major drawback of the academia industry relationship is um, the conflict of interest, especially when it comes to intellectual property. And also that uh, in most of the cases, the industries. Uh, people do not possess that uh, kind of knowledge to appreciate and further explore and commercialize a product. So you made a very valid point because many researchers are having this dilemma. Should they stay in the academia and continue their research or should they go for a startup, create their own company to commercialize and realize their research? Indeed, and um, as you said, uh, indeed, there is a, a conflict of interest, uh, there are challenges, and each researcher will have to make his or her own decision which way to go. And so every case is different. We have a, a startup, uh, and um, we reach a point where we really, at least personally, I do not want to push it any further without industrial partnership. And the other conflict that you alluded to is the issue of intellectual property. Typically, this can be handled. There can be an agreement ahead of time. The only issue is if somebody stays in a university and has 
PhD students and master's and sometimes and several times undergraduate students working on a technology, the students have to publish. They have to publish for their, their in, in reports or in thesis, or they have to publish academic work uh, in journals. That means revealing basically what they are doing. And that's something that industry does not like. There are secrets in industry and uh, the university cannot have secrets like that when students participate in the research. I'm not as experienced as you are, of course, and maybe I will never be in research, um, but I don't think it's that easy to replicate the technology based on publications. Replicate it, no, but uh, start from uh, a non-zero ground and have a head start is possible. If uh, a big company, for example, copies Vivace and builds it and sells it and produces it, it is very difficult for a startup company with really very small budget to challenge those huge companies on the basis of intellectual property. So the only safe way is, first of all, to get the patents right from the beginning, as we did. And then there are two ways. One is to continue the research and stay ahead of the game, which we have been doing. We have more than 100 publications actually out of my lab. And the other way is um, to really not reveal some of the secrets, let's say, of the research. But it is possible for somebody to reverse engineer and get most of the information out. In other words, they may not understand, for example, why we have the turbulence stimulation the way we have it, why we have the spacing of the cylinders the way we have it. They may not understand what kind of stiffness and what kind of adaptive dumping we're using. Quite a few things. But they can just visualize what we have, reproduce it, and then learn from that point on. So it's, it's a race. And if we stay ahead of the game by doing intelligent research, then we have the advantage. And that's where we are right now. The issue of intellectual property is quite uh, challenging. So for example, we have patents in the United States and Europe, but of course not all the countries in Europe because it costs a tremendous amount of money to get uh, patents. Uh, it costs, even though the application is cheap, you spend easily over $50,000 per patent per country. And uh, with 190 countries around the world, that's um, not really very easy to, to achieve. Let me give you an example. I've, I've seen in the last uh, few months a company from Spain advertising uh, windmills without turbines and basically have vibrating uh, cylinders based on vortex-induced vibration galloping. They're definitely infringing on our patents, you know, but we don't have patents in Spain. But of course, if they try to export this, we'll be there waiting. And, and also at that point, also I see some things in that application that there's no way they're going to work. And so you keep the secrets and you let them figure it out. And uh, I mean, I'm, you know, and definitely there can be, and there were actually one patent in Korea, which is identical to ours. There were several attempts in China for patents. And uh, because I have, uh, Students of mine and collaborators of mine in both countries, I found about. But, you know, there are 180 countries, lots of intelligent people around the world. 
definitely technologies can be copied and patented infringed. Generally speaking, education might be synonymous with uh, knowledge and academia. And we've already discussed about the synergy between the academia and the industries, and maybe that uh, collaboration between the academia, the industries, and businesses should become deeper. As engineers, we know well the interactions between the different disciplines, especially in renewables. We see that uh, different disciplines and sectors, when they attempt to innovate or reinvent themselves, um, they borrow terms and vocabulary of other disciplines. And this is mostly common in the business, the economy and the technology sectors. One of these words is the word ecosystem. We haven't seen yet the renewables engineering disciplines to describe themselves as an ecosystem. So we see that engineers have not really capitalized on such a terminology uh, since we have different disciplines of engineers contributing to the renewable sector. How could the synergy of engineering disciplines enhance the creativity for more novel products, because we've already seen that. Can we go even further? Definitely. Um, we, it's not just mechanical engineering, but um, most of the disciplines of engineering are needed, um, like ocean engineering, chemical engineering, mechanical, electrical, all of the and materials all of these can contribute to developing new technologies uh, for the blue economy. You know, the blue economy has been defined well by the World Bank and it's going to, to grow uh, into industry of several trillion dollars in the next decade. Uh, now, um, in... Uh, of course, any development like this may have the scientific basis, but without engineering, it cannot be implemented. And uh, so we see a lot of uh, solutions to problems that we have in uh, nature. Uh, for example, uh, the vortex-induced vibrations, which is a phenomenon where uh, the underlying phenomenon for our Vivace uh, converter. On one hand, it can be destructive. On the other hand, it can be uh, productive, as in uh, our case. And the solution for suppression of these destructive phenomena is also found in nature. For example, uh, if you consider mammals, um, like uh, seals and otis and sea lions and so on, they have whiskers. And they get more information from their whiskers than they get from eyes and ears. The, the, the whiskers are sensors. But of course, the whiskers are little cylindrical bodies. If they try to move against the water, they will start vibrating in flow-induced oscillations, either VIV or galloping. But if you take those whiskers and you put them under a microscope, you will see some very intricate, very uh, shallow uh, variations on the surface. They are not smooth. 
and those suppress completely vortex-induced vibrations and gallop. So the way we, find, we found uh, a solution to harnessing energy from flows, nature also shows us for exactly the same phenomenon how we can suppress it. So um, it's definitely um, going to be a tremendous revolution in technologies, developing technologies for the blue economy, because we have everything in the water, in the ocean. We have water that we can desalinate. We have energy that we can harness. And we have food from fish that we can uh, farm in an environmentally sustainable way. And those three are three of the top 10 problems of humanity that uh, the United Nations has defined. So um, there's tremendous uh, progress that we can make in that respect. The sky is the limit, or maybe I should say in our environment, the ocean depth is the limit to uh, development, uh, both scientific development and uh, engineering development. My last question, Michael, is about what you would say to your younger self. Reading when you suggested studying vortices to your undergraduate supervisor at the National Technical University of Athens, he answered that anybody who had dealt with vortices had droned, which sounded like discouraging a young student from studying his dream scientific interest. What would you say to a student or young researcher today in a similar position? Okay, well, uh, first of all, I would like to give a different interpretation of the statement from my advisor and later friend, um, who was a very well-educated professor and very good in research and definitely very good in teaching. Uh, he was my mentor as an undergrad. And um, I believe that uh, he made that statement not to discourage me, but to caution me uh, that this is a very challenging problem. There are lots of people that have dealt with this problem. And here we are 50 years later with a very similar challenges that still remain unsolved. So I think it was uh, uh, an advice that I should be careful before I delve so uh, deeply into one topic. So um, I would say, first of all, to my younger self or students my age in the same, in, at that time and in the same uh, position, don't shy away from uh, very difficult problems. If you contribute to their solution, it's very rewarding. But on the other hand, do not bind yourself in a very narrow uh, path because if you fail, and we frequently fail in our attempts, and we regroup and retry, then you, you do not get your degrees, you do not go through the steps of progress that you have to make in your career to advance. So keep that problem in mind, maybe redirect your efforts to something which would be in the same field, um, relevant, and as you develop more tools with time and more knowledge, Keep that problem in mind so you can address it again later. Thank you, Michael, for being at the Global Greek Influence Podcast. Thank you for the opportunity to discuss this important topic. I really appreciate it. And I wish the best for you to continue your really, really very useful effort. 
Thank you again, Michael. It was uh, my pleasure to be my guest and you're always welcome to come back. Professor Bernice Sendai discussed a maritime engineering approach to harvesting water currents for the production of renewable energy, multidisciplinary and exodisciplinary engineering enabling the blue economy, not to shy away from problems by enriching one's education and skills to land his or her dream, the inevitably complex balance to research and commercialization based on the current academic structures. Thank you all for staying at the end of this episode. Next Sunday, the Anita Lawrence Professor of High Performance Architecture at the University of New South Wales in Australia, Matsa Damuris, talks about combating climate change in an urban environment. Stay tuned for more exciting episodes every Sunday. Subscribe, like and review the Global Greek Influence Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Anchor FM and four more podcasting platforms. You can contact the Global Greek Influence through the podcast Facebook and Twitter accounts and the podcast website globalgreekinfluence.com.